0: Can I just say how thrilled I am to be preaching to faces today and not a camera? Uh, many years ago, many, many years ago now, when I was in middle school, I had the joy of attending my first ever student camp all the way in Ridgecrest, North Carolina. It was a pretty good hike from Louisiana to North Carolina, but it was Definitely worth it. We had an incredible week there at Centrifuge Camp. We had people come to know the Lord. We had lives that were changed, spiritual journeys of the Lord that were deepened. But the most memorable thing that happened on our trip to North Carolina happened for me as we were leaving the camp. We had an interesting youth leader at the time. And I guess you could say all youth leaders are interesting, right, Kyle? But this one was particularly interesting. And in order to protect the innocent, I'm going to change his name. Let's just say that his name was Scott, okay? Scott was unique as a a youth leader. And he was driving the front van, supposedly guiding our way back from North Carolina to Louisiana. And I happened to be in the van that was following him with my family and some other leaders. And as uh, he was leaving, uh, he took a wrong turn and started going in the wrong direction. Well, Mr. Gary, who was driving my van, was talking with the leaders and said, hey, let's just go the way we know we're supposed to go, and eventually, you know, hopefully the next exit, Scott will turn around, and they'll just come meet us, and so we did that, and we began driving, and 30 minutes passed, 45 minutes passed, an hour passed, and even though we were going very slow, you know, like you drive below the speed limit to let people catch up with you, uh, the van never caught up with us, and Remember, this is a very long time ago, so there were no cell phones. This is a time when you still had to use paper maps to navigate the United States. Many of you maybe have never seen a paper map. They existed, and that's how we got around before cell phones and, you know, Garmin and that kind of stuff. And so we pulled over on the side of the road at a rest stop, and we waited for like 30 minutes trying to figure out what to do, and they made the decision, our leaders made the decision, just to go ahead and go to Chattanooga where we were staying the night, and that would be our rendezvous point. And so we got to Chattanooga, and we waited. And and three hours later, the other van pulls up. And we're all wondering, what happened? Why why did it take you so long? Well, um, Scott never turned around. And he kept going east for two hours. Now, you can get to Louisiana going east from North Carolina But it'll take a really long time, and you're going to need some more transportation than just a van. Because there's an ocean, a couple of continents, and the whole other side of the United States that you're going to have to get across. And no matter how many times people were suggesting to to Scott, hey, Scott, I think we may be going the wrong direction. That, That sign says east, and I'm pretty sure we're supposed to be heading west, no matter how many times they suggested to this leader that he was going the wrong way he was too proud to admit that he was lost any men in here ever ever suffered from that illness that ailment and i learned something that day that when you are not able to admit that you're wrong when you're not able to admit that you're going in the wrong direction you suffer and all the people around you suffer with you. See, the Lord taught me something that day. And every time I, I read a scripture about repentance, that story comes to mind. Because I think it is the, the perfect picture of what it means to repent or, or the necessity of repentance, even in the life of God's people. Repentance is godly sorrow. Repentance is godly grief over sin that that leads to a change, that leads to a turning around from going down a path that dishonors the Lord to now going down a path that honors the Lord. And it's important for us to recognize that as God's people, there is an essential place of repentance in our lives. Some people may think that repentance only happens once in the life of the believer. At the moment of your salvation, it is true that at salvation, the work of the Spirit in your life is evidenced in repentance and belief. But that is not the only time that God will call us to repent as part of his people, as followers of Christ, because repentance is also a work of sanctification, as the Holy Spirit continues his work on the other side of salvation, to to make you more like Christ through his word through accountability with other brothers and sisters, he will bring things in your life, evidences of sin in your life, places where you're going down the wrong direction, show them to you so that you can turn, so that you can quit going in the wrong direction and move toward obedience to the Lord, which leads you to greater joy. Repentance is not just a one-time deal. It's an ongoing work and the lives of the believer that evidences the ongoing work of the Spirit. In Ezra 9 and 10, we see the topic of repentance brought forward among God's people once again. Why? How, how have we gotten, not even through the book of Ezra, and come to a place where the people of God find themselves once again in need of, of repentance. Not a generation has passed. Remember last week when we began the the story specific of Ezra, only 57 years had passed. One generation from the first people that returned to the land of promise and already they have gotten into trouble. Already they have returned to their folly. They are doing the very same things that got them into trouble in the first place and brought them under the judgment of God. And the major act of rebellion that Ezra has to address, according to verses 1 and 2, is the issue of intermarriage. Listen to what the Bible says in Ezra 9, 1 and 2. After these things had been done, the officials approached me, Ezra, and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. Remember, that's what they were called to do to be set apart amongst a crooked generation, amongst evil pagan nations. But God's people had not done that. For they, according to verse 2, have taken some of their daughters to be wives and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And listen to this. In this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been for Most foremost. Now, before we go any further, I think it's important for us to understand why the issue of intermarriage was such a big deal for the people of God. Why it was a big deal for God and why He was calling His people to repent of it. And the reason why I think it's important that we take some time to deal with this is because where I grew up, and a lot of people, places in the South. Unfortunately, texts like this have been used to promote racism and agendas of racism. But that is not the reason why God is saying what he is saying here. So it's very important that we understand what the big deal with intermarriage is. And there's, there's two big deals I want to call our attention to that, that get to the heart of why God is so concerned about this intermarriage. Big deal one. These foreign marriages, foreign wives, foreign husbands, the people, the foreign people they're marrying, worship foreign gods. The foreign aspect that God is concerned about is not the color of their skin or even other cultural issues that surround it, like the type of food that you eat. The major issue that God is concerned about is pagan worship and how idolatry has the potential to seep into the set-apart people and pervert the heart of his people away from God. This is why God addresses this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, as the people of God are entering into the land of promise. Hear what God has to say to them in verses 1 to 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of, this is the first time, and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all the Ites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Make no covenant with them. Show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons' Four. why? Verse, verse 4. They would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. He would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in their, and pieces their pillars and chop down their asher and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the earth. God doesn't want his people to intermarry with these pagan peoples because he knows that if they do not renounce their foreign gods, that idolatry will infect the worship of Israel. And it will affect God's larger redemptive work through them. And that leads us to big deal number two. Not only is God concerned about idolatry, these foreign marriages threaten God's larger covenant promises, his larger redemptive work. Look at Ezra chapter 9, verse 2 again. These people have been acting dishonorably because they have taken these wives and given their sons, So that, listen to this, the holy race, another option there could be the holy seed, the holy nation of Israel has mixed itself with the people of the lands. Now, what is God saying here? This is not just some random observation that's being reported to Ezra. Something of of legitimate, redemptive, historical concern is happening here. This is tied to to God's promise, covenant promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Do you remember this? Where he comes to Abraham and he says to him, listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your line. I'm going to bless your your seed. I'm going to make you into a nation, a holy nation through which all other nations would be blessed. They were supposed to be a distinct people, given a distinct covenant and law with God to evidence, the blessing and benefit of worshiping the one true God to be a light to the rest of the world. And as they invite these pagan, idolatrous practices into the people of God, they're threatening their own heart, but they're also threatening the the plan of God that will culminate in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is concerned here about the line the purity of the line that will get from Abraham to Jesus to evidence his incredible faithfulness to the promises that he has made. To all of us on the other side of the fall, to, to make a plan, to bring about a solution to the problem of sin. And when you invite sin in, you threaten the cure for sin that God is planning. This covenant promise prepares the way for Christ, and God takes that glorious work seriously. So notice, these were the primary issues that God was concerned about, not race in and of itself. And just to to bring this point home, we know this because there are other marriages between people of different ethnicities in the Bible that God actually blesses. Remember Moses? He marries Zipporah, who was a Midianite woman. And then Boaz. Boaz married Ruth. What was she? A Moabitess. And yet God uses that marriage to paint a picture for us in the book of Ruth of an integral facet of the work that he will do for us in Christ. It's a picture of the gospel. What Boaz does for Ruth. So it clearly pleases the Lord. So God prohibited this practice of intermarriage for the good of his people, their hearts, and for the good of his redemptive plan. But the people of God chose to ignore God's commands once again, choosing earthly pleasure over godly pleasure. As Ezra returns, he's told what's happening. He knows the law. He knows what this could mean for the people of God who have just returned to their land, and he's broken. He's sorrowful on behalf of his people. And listen to this prayer that he prays in chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. Here's what Ezra says. Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. And as we read this, we just think, have you ever felt like this over sin, ever? Ever? I'm ashamed to lift my face to you for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens from the days of our fathers. To this day, we have been in great guilt and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests have been given into the the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. That our God has not forsaken us in our slavery but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets saying what we just read in Deuteronomy. The land is impure. Don't give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, so that you can be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Verse 13. And after all that has come upon us, for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? And intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? So that there would be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you in this. It's a powerful prayer from Ezra on behalf of the people of God. And its power is attached to the fact that it is, it is repentance on display. I'm not sure there's a, a better picture of repentance in all the scripture than we see happening right here from the words of Ezra. And it's interesting because Ezra didn't even do anything wrong. He's functioning in a priestly role here. Praying on behalf of the people of God, hoping to lead them into repentance by his example. And in that way, he's functioning as a type of Christ who's interceding for us right now, leading us to repentance. And the good news in the story of Ezra is that the people of God listen to Ezra and they do, at least for a moment, repent. What I would like for us to do in, And the time we have left this morning is to learn from the example of Ezra. As he was a a priestly example for the people of God then, let him be a priestly example for us today. As we consider and learn the importance of repentance in the life of the people of God. And there are four qualities I want to draw our attention to, to help us make sure that we are experiencing and practicing repentance in a God-honoring way, even on the other side of salvation. Quality one that we see about godly repentance. Godly repentance begins with God. Godly repentance begins with God. Paul writes, and Romans 2, 4, these very famous words that many of us have saying over and over again. It's your kindness, God, that leads us to repentance. The kindness of God is what leads us to a place of repentance, his, his forbearance, his patience. And we see that on display in the prayer of Ezra in our text. Ezra is ashamed. He's blushing before God because of Israel's persistent unfaithfulness in light of God's continued faithfulness. He's ashamed because God has proven himself faithful over and over and over again, and yet his people have continued to turn away from him, proving themselves unfaithful. He says that the people of God have often found themselves in great guilt, throughout their history. And justifiably, they've experienced great judgment. But even so, God has showed them favor. God has showed them kindness. He's given an opportunity to to once again receive his blessing through obedience, according to verse 8. He's brought them back from Persian slavery, verse 9. He did not forsake what he promised to his promised people. He was kind to them. And yet, once again, they have forsaken him. Him, rejecting his commands. For Ezra, repentance begins when we consider the faithlessness of man in light of the faithfulness of God. Ezra knows what God expects. He's put it clearly in his law. And there's testimony after testimony of God honoring what he promises. And testimony after testimony of God judging his people when they walk away in faithlessness. And now, as he sees the favor of God displayed upon this people and allowing them to return, and as he sees the people of God forgetting it, just a generation later, he's broken. God's been so kind and so patient. How could we be this way? And he knows that there will come a time when God's patience and his kindness will end. If they don't turn and repent. True repentance begins for us when we consider our place before a holy and righteous God. It, can, it begins when we consider the faithfulness of God toward us, even when we did not deserve it the provision that he has made for us to experience his favor. Seeing the love he's displayed for us through his faithfulness, specifically for us, the cross of Christ, and responding by saying, I have no business being in your favor. I have no business experiencing your grace, but I recognize you've made a way for me to experience and Now I want to do everything that I can to honor you. We're moved by God to live for God. That's how repentance begins. It certainly begins at salvation, right? That's how all of us who are in Christ came to a place of salvation. We were broken in our sin. The Holy Spirit revealed that to us, the gap that existed between us and God. But then we saw God's graciousness when we could not go to him, he came to us. He showed his loving kindness to us. And that loving kindness stirred in us, began in us a love for God through the work of the Spirit. To love him how we could not love him before because of how sin had gripped our heart. We were moved by the action of God, the kindness of God to want to turn away from a a path of life that was leading us to destruction, toward a path that led us to life and joy and abundance. It's also true in sanctification. That act of repentance that God has worked within us that leads us to salvation, he also continues in our life on the other side of Christ as we are moved more and more by the love of God, as we come to know it more, as we study the word of God and walk in community, the Lord reveals more things in our hearts, more things in our lives that do not honor him, that are not like Christ, so that we can repent of them, remove them, and walk in a way that honors him because he's worthy of it. Because we want to evidence our love for him as a result of the way that he's loved us. And the more we know of God, the more we love God, we want to please God. And in that way, repentance becomes a good thing. Because it helps us live lives that honor the Lord. Something we're moved to because of the faithfulness of God. So repentance, godly repentance begins with God. That's the first quality. But secondly, godly repentance leads to confession. So it begins with God, recognizing who God is and seeing his kindness toward us, his faithfulness to us. But then the second thing that godly repentance leads to is confession. Once we recognize our sin, once God has made it aware, he's brought it to our attention, we have the responsibility to say of our sin what God has said about it. That's what the word confession means it means agreement. Notice, Ezra did not try to explain away his sin. The majesty of God would not let him. There was no excuse. He didn't didn't say, you know, God, listen. There were were just slim pickings on the Mediterranean coast when we came home, you know? And so we couldn't meet anybody. We got on uh, easternmediterranean.com, and these are just the people who came up. And so we wanted to get married, and we got married. You know, he didn't make any excuses. When when you see God for who he is, and you see his loving kindness toward you, when you see his holiness, it doesn't allow you to try to explain away the things that do not honor him. So Ezra doesn't even try. He just says, this is wrong, because you have said it's wrong, and there's no excuse. And the people follow his example. Look at chapter 10, verse 2. This contagious confession. Shekiniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, they all wept bitterly. They addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope. This, this posture The people of God take in confession is so important. How many times in our lives do we try to justify the unjustifiable? How many times when we're confronted with sin in our life, again, whether we're we're reading the word of God or we're walking in community and somebody points something out to us, how many times do we try to justify it, to explain it away, to make it better? I'm thinking about parenting you know, parenting is difficult for a number of reasons, not just because our kids are sinful, but because also it reveals sin in us, right? And there, there are times when I'm addressing Jude, and I'm, I'm trying to correct something in his life, and he responds, and I'm thinking, man, that is Jared Richard made over. It's challenging. Like, lately, when we're, when we're addressing something he's to correct, usually as it pertains to how he interacts with his sister, He'll say something like this, but dad, I was just trying to, but dad, I was just doing this. But dad, you just don't understand what I was trying to do. And I'll say, no, 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 son, I know exactly what you were trying to do. And you know it's wrong. But dad, I was just trying nope, it's wrong. You can't do that. Doesn't matter what the excuse is, you can't do it. Now, as I was thinking about this teaching on repentance this week, I thought, how many times have I done that with the Lord, right? Where... He's brought something to my attention. And because I'm not focusing on him, because I'm focusing on earthly things, I just tried to explain it away. But God, it wasn't that bad. It's not as bad as what so-and-so was doing. Oh, you don't understand what I was going through. Yeah, I, I was kind of angry when I said that, wrathful, mad, but you don't know what they said to me. You don't know what they've done to me. And he reminds me, well, Jared, I'm all-knowing. Of course I know. That I mean it's Right. No matter how many times you excuse it, when you place your actions against my standard, it's wrong. It doesn't make you more like Christ. You need to say of your sin what I have said about it. You need to say this God, you're right. I blew it, it was wrong. I admit I was wrong. I am so grateful that there's hope on the other side of this confession. Your loving kindness is still available to me even after I confess it. The third quality that we see in the text repentance begins with God, it leads to confession. Repentance demands action. What we see in our text is that simply acknowledging sin is not enough. Your change of heart has to lead to a change of behavior or it's not really repentance. After the people of God confess their sin, after they say about their sin what God has said, then they act to try to make it right. They act to try to turn the van around so they don't drive off into the Atlantic Ocean. We see this action in chapter 10. Verse 3 and then verses 10 to 17. Let's read verses 10 to 17 together. Ezra is addressing the people now, and he says, This you have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Notice there the equation for repentance. Make confession, say what God has said about it, and then do what he wants you to do. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land, from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so, and we must do as we have said. And the rest of the the verses there down to 17 talk about the people of God doing just that. Evaluating the marriages and separating themselves from those marriages that would lead them into a place of rebellion and idolatry. The people of God, they agree to put away their foreign wives and their foreign families. Godly repentance leads to godly change. Words are meaningless unless they are reflected in our lives. Now, it's very important to acknowledge that in this case, the action is messy. All right? And for many of us in 2020, when we see what's happening here, it makes us uncomfortable. It's just a good reminder for us that sin is always messy. It's always messy. And even on the other side of repentance, the wake of sin is not always fully resolved and won't be until Christ returns and sets everything right. As we try to honor the Lord on the other side of our sin, there are some things that are going to be uncomfortable. There are some things that are going to be messy. And the same thing is true here. So why is God asking his people to put away their wives, their, their children even in some cases, separating themselves from us? It? It sounds like an awful lot like divorce. And doesn't God hate divorce? Well, it's true, God hates divorce. And we see that in the book of Malachi. There's a different context there, but it's very clear that God does not want divorce. So why is he saying for the people of God in this moment, in this time, to put away their, their wives or their husbands or their families who are foreign. This is a, a really important point for us to consider and talk through because of the potential confusion that can happen here. I think there's something unique happening in Ezra 9 and 10. Not everything that is described in the Bible is prescribed for us today, meaning that we should follow it exactly as it's happening this. This is a moment in time God is doing something very specific in this moment to purify his people and set apart them. And it seems like God is wanting the people of God to recognize something about the nature of this union, so much so that the the word that he uses to describe the marriage is a different Hebrew word than is normally describing marriages in the Old Testament. And the word there means simply to to invite, to dwell with. So even more than marriages, it's almost like these people were just shacking up together, just living together, calling it a marriage, but it was never ordained by God. It was never joined together by God. And God wants his people to recognize what you have said about this union, I have not said about this union It is not honoring to me. Rather, it is a function of your rebellion. And so long as they will not turn their hearts to worship me, so long as they will not forsake their foreign gods and worship me, you cannot bring them into this remnant. You cannot bring them to the set-apart people. Something greater is at stake, and you need to return them to their families. That's tough. It's tough, a consequence for a lot of people. But it just reminds us again, sin is messy. And what a challenging thing for us to consider today as we, as we walk through the ramifications of what that means. Some of you in this room may be dating someone who's not a believer. Some of you in this room may be married to someone who's not a believer. What, am I supposed to go and, and divorce my husband and my wife right now. No, that's not what the Word of God says, ultimately. Remember the New Testament? Shapes our responsibility in a different way. In fact, for wives specifically, the Bible says that you should set a godly example. Pray for your husband, serve your husband to the, to the, the hope that they would come to know to Christ, to be converted by the gospel. There's a lot of nuance there, and, and and honestly, it probably needs, the conversation that we need to probably have about that situation needs to, be hap- needs to happen in a pastoral care kind of moment. So if you're in that situation, come talk to us. We'd love to help navigate you through your actions. I don't think the Bible is calling you to divorce. Again, I think what's happening here is specific to what God wants to accomplish right here and right now. But he is doing a unique work, reminding God's people of the consequence of their sin and reminding us of the wake of mess that can happen in our sin. Wouldn't it be great if we could see fully the consequence of our sin before we engage it? How many times have we been on the other side of sin and thought, if I had just known what I know right now, I would have never done what I did, right? And that's a a hard thing to, to consider and learn as the people of God, in the moment of temptation to remember the reality of sin, that it will take you further than you want to go, it will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will make you pay more than you want to pay, always. The fourth quality that we see about godly repentance. Godly repentance accepts godly discipline. So, Jared, we've confessed. We've committed to change. Shouldn't that be enough? Well, sometimes it is. But sometimes God disciplines us to make sure that we and the people of God around us have learned the lesson that we need to learn. Chapter 10, verses 18 to 44, is a really challenging text for me. And if you read it, it's not just because we're reading a lot of names that are hard to pronounce. It's a list of all the people who dishonored the God, who dishonored God in disobedience. I want you to think about that. We only know these people's names because God and his sovereignty inspired their names to be written down for the people of God to consider until Christ returns because of their disobedience. Isn't that shocking? Sometimes, God allows us to experience the full consequence of our sin for our good. And in that way, godly discipline can be a gift because it's meant to lead us away from the danger of sin. As a warning to the whole body of Christ and a reminder to us that what we think is good will ultimately lead to our destruction. You got to turn your van around. Start going the opposite way. Godly discipline can be a good thing for his people. But I also want you to remember the good news of the gospel this morning. The greatest consequence of your sin, if you are in Christ. Has already been satisfied in the work of Jesus. listen, your sins may be written down here in a book your sins may be public record for people to remember, but God's already written your book in another your name in another book as well if you're in him, and that will lead you to eternal salvation. so repentance. I hope you see, should be a central action, a central practice of the people of God as we seek to honor God and become more like Christ. Repentance is a response to God's work of salvation, but it's also a work, a response to God's work of sanctification. And remember, because of that, repentance will always, always, always lead to joy. I think a lot of times we're, we're nervous about repentance because it seems heavy and that it's too hard to bear this idea that, that we have to live in this kind of grief until Christ returns, always having our sin pointed out to us and, and never feeling like we've arrived. But listen, every time God removes some sin in your life, you're walking in closer relationship with God. And the more you have of God, the more joy you have because that's where true joy is found. And so in this way, we should welcome repentance. We should welcome this kind of godly grief because it is what will lead us to true, lasting joy. Not the things that will steal our joy. Just as we see here in Ezra 9 and 10. So, how should we respond this morning to the preached word of God? Firstly, do you need to repent? Do you need to repent? Maybe some of you have come or are watching today and you felt the instability of this time and you recognize that this world is not gonna last forever and that one day you're gonna stand before a holy and righteous God and his judgment will be poured out upon those who have not trusted in Christ. His loving kindness His patience will give way to his wrath and his justice. Maybe today you're seeing what God has done for you in Jesus, and you want to take advantage, full advantage of that provision by trusting in him for salvation. Oh, what a great response that the Holy Spirit would be moving in your heart today to repent and believe in Jesus. For the rest of us who are in Christ, I'm wondering if there's some specific things we need to repent of in this time of separation. You know, isolation, loneliness can be the devil's playground. And maybe some of you in this room who've given your lives to Christ have turned back to your folly, to some old things that are steering your heart away from the Lord. And maybe this morning you need to repent. Maybe you need to to consider God's loving kindness, the provision that he's made for you. Say of your sin what God has said and commit in your heart with accountability around you to change, to live differently, even if there's discipline involved. Because it's worth it to get nearer to God. Have you said of your sin what God has said? And have you made a plan to change? If you're feeling tempted this morning, And I have no doubt the enemy in your mind right now, some of you in this room, the enemy could be constructing in your mind how you're going to sin this afternoon when you leave. Have you considered the the wake of your sin? The fullness of what it could cost? Can I just address the elephant in the room just for a moment again? Some of you uh, may be thinking about dating an unbeliever or even marrying. An unbeliever. Jared, how would you counsel me in that? I would say don't do it. Don't do it. Because there's going to be an inherent tension in that relationship for the entirety of its existence. Because if you two cannot agree on the most important thing in your life, then your heart's going to be torn. And God does not want that for you. Don't do it. Well, Jared, what if I got married before I was in Christ and now I'm in Christ, what do I do? Follow the direction of the New Testament. Pray for your spouse, for an opportunity to to share with them the gospel and to evidence for them the gospel that the Lord would bring them to faith in Christ. And if there are any other decisions to make, come talk to us so we can walk pastorally with you. And finally, Make provision to not return to what you've repented from. And it's really important for us to to learn the, the lesson of Ezra. There's a reason why Ezra 10 ends the book of Ezra. Just because we've repented of something, just because we've experienced the favor of God, does not mean that we are free from the temptation of what we've repented of forever. If we don't learn the lesson... That God has taught us, and we don't make the necessary action or take the necessary actions to walk in obedience, we can fall victim to sin again. Be on guard, church family, so that we as God's people can be a set apart people doing the work that God has called us to do for His glory and our good. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads, spend some time before the Lord, asking Him to help you know how to respond? you need to repent. Maybe you just need to get on the ground, right in front of your chair this morning, and just cry out to the Lord like Ezra did. I'm not saying you need to pull out your hair, or tear off your clothes, but I am saying you should be broken. And if you're not broken over your sin, you should ask the question, why? Have you beheld God truly? Have you seen his loving kindness Maybe some of you have picked up some bad habits and you need to repent right now and confess it maybe to a a brother or sister who's with you. Maybe you need to, to set some guards up because you feel tempted in a particular way. But remember, in the midst of your confession, there's hope that whatever it is you've done, it's not greater than the work of Christ. And while you cannot cover your sin, God has covered it in Jesus. Let his loving kindness move you to repentance today and lead you to greater joy. Father, help us to respond in a way that's faithful. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Let me just say this. If this week you need to reach out to one of us because we can't engage right now, send us an email at the church, call us. We'd love to talk with you more about any other decision you'd make beyond today. Let's stand and sing together.